We're in the, the book of Mark, and last week when we came, um, I, we dismissed the kids. I had the chance to speak in the junior church, and I mentioned that the kids guessed my age from 30 to 90. And um, somebody greeted me and said, I look pretty good for 90 today. <laughs> and uh, last week when I said 30, everybody laughed. And that's what disturbs me just a little bit this morning, actually, you know. Why did you laugh? <laughs> anyway, we are back in um, this subject because we see an aging process actually taking place in the Gospel of Mark's author, who is um, John Mark. And just find it very interesting here that his, his life was an interesting one. He started out with a, being an assistant to really Barnabas and Paul and went the first missionary journey with him. He was a helper. He was there when Peter got out of prison. He went on that first missionary journey, but he left the journey. He, he defected. He became a deserter. That's a sad commentary, but it happens. Missionary work is not easy. We need to pray for our missionaries. I've known missionaries who have not done well. It's very difficult. John became a deserter, and uh, he left the field. He disappeared for a while. He went with uh, Barnabas, who was his uh, cousin. And then later, about 10 years later, we see him back again, and he is actually with the Apostle Paul there. And he goes on... Um, he, he does have an opportunity to go on another missionary journey prior to that, and, and Paul will not allow him to go because he deserted. But he comes back in the end. And so if you remember last Sunday, actually my blog this week, which you'll see online, or you, if you receive it and have signed up for it online, you'll see the whole story there. Very interesting to see how his life changed. And in the end, he became, in the end, he became a writer of Scripture. He became one of the people that God used to write holy Scripture, holy writ. So what an interesting story. And, and History says that he probably even may have become a pastor in, uh, down in Egypt, too. So he was a young man who had great opportunity, but he kind of fell just a little ways, but God used him. He wasn't an apostle, and he wasn't a scholar. He wasn't any of those kind of things we normally would think as an important person or a dignitary. He was just an ordinary person, but God used him to write Holy Scripture. And this is really one of the shortest um, the shortest New Testament gospel of the four that we have in the New Testament. And it's very much to the point in everything it does. So thus we call it the newspaper version of the gospel. And this morning we're going to look at the beginning of the good news in verses 1 through 8. So yeah, last Sunday was just introduction. And this Sunday we're to the beginning of the good news. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to encourage you to, to be looking in your Bibles. I'm not going to put anything up on the screen other than that just for a few minutes. But um, for you to have your Bibles open, your, um, your telephones open, whatever you use for a Bible, and to follow along with me. Because we're going to look at just eight verses, which gives us the beginning of the good news, or the gospel. That's just another term for the gospel. The beginning of the good news, and then the message of the good news, and then the proclaimer of the good news. We'll look at that, kind of divide those few verses down in that way. So let's look, first of all, the first three verses, the beginning of the good news. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready 
the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. So it's interesting. He starts out and he says the beginning of the good news. The beginning of the gospel is what he's talking about here. The very, very beginning. But when John Mark was starting, it was just before the time Christ became noted. But how you say, how can that be? Well, the good news really started before that. It goes throughout the Old Testament. If you go back to Genesis 3.15, if you know that verse, Genesis 3.15 talks about it. It's the seed plot of the Bible. It gives a hint of what this good news is about. It says, and I, this is the Lord speaking here to Satan. He says, and I will put enmity between you, that's between Satan and the woman. That would have been the woman who would eventually be, we would say, Mary. And between your seed and her seed, seed of Satan would be all those demons and angels and those who follow him. And her seed would, of course, be Jesus Christ. And he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. In other words, the seed of the woman would bruise Satan on the head, and a head blow is a death blow, if you know anything about that. But Satan would only bruise him, bruise the child of the woman, or Christ, only bruise uh, him on the heel, which is not a death blow, not a death blow. So we have the, really the seed plot of the Bible. It's there. It's the beginning of the gospel, we could say. And, and it's in other places, in Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice and all of that. Hints of it all along the way. But it comes to fulfillment here now in the New Testament. And we have the beginning of the good news for the coming of Christ is really what this is talking about here. So it's interesting because incidentally, I, I think that Mark was very likely the first writer of a gospel commentary here, a gospel book. That's questioned a little bit. It might have been a few years different or off, but at any rate, it was early. It was early. And so in the books of the New Testament and the gospels, it's out there right away. And the very first verse is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, how did the other gospels start? How did the other gospels start? Matthew, Luke, and John. Well, it's interesting because if you go back and look, I was really fascinated by this, you know, really fascinated as I, as I looked into all of this. So I was thumbing through my Bible. You go, to, you go to Matthew, it begins with the genealogy of Jesus Christ from Abraham to Mary. Very Jewish orientation on the genealogy because Matthew was a Jew and it deals with Mary and the, and the fact that Christ was Jewish physical birth for Mary. It talks also about the, the birth of Christ, the visit of the, the Magi, the kings that they came from the east. It talks about the flight to Egypt when there was danger for them there. It talks about uh, Herod killing the children, trying to stomp, stomp out this newborn king that he heard about, and the return of them eventually to Nazareth, and eventually the coming of John the Baptist. It's all stuff that happened before what we're looking here, but John doesn't make any, John Mark doesn't make any mention of it. And then you have Luke. Luke is interesting. Luke was, we believe, a physician. And he begins with the announcement of, of John the Baptist's birth. So he gives more details. He also has the angelic announcement of Christ's birth there too. And, and Mary's wonderful, beautiful 
hymn-like song that she has about her coming birth. Zachariah's prophecies of John's ministries and Christ's birth and the shepherds coming and Simeon and Anna in the temple and uh, all of those things. It does have the genealogy from Joseph to Adam. In other words, just the reverse order, but it happens after where we are here in this text. So there's all this, all this other data way before, way before we get to the place where we are in the very first verse of John, excuse me, of uh, Mark 1. So it's very interesting. But what about John, the Gospel of John? Well, that begins with a statement from Christ himself and eternity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God there. Interesting, isn't it? In the Gospel of Mark. And he was the closest John, that John was, to, to Christ, so we can understand why he would say things of such nature as the Lord would use each of those three, Matthew, Luke, and John, to write gospel narratives about the coming of the Christ. But they all begin with a lot of stuff way ahead of time before we get to where we are today. And John, just, John Mark just leaves it all out. He just leaves it all out. So uh, John Mark really admits that he was, keep in mind, he was writing probably from Rome. He's now a mature believer. He's serving the Lord. He was a quote-unquote servant. That's what he called himself. He was one who served. And uh, by the way, he may have been a Levite. His cousin Barnabas, we know, was a Levite. And Levites were those who served and helped the priests. And so it's very, it's very possible John Mark was a Levite also, so it talks about him serving, which was what Levites generally did. Just an interesting way in which that thing may have developed in that way. So he really focuses on activity, he focuses on action, he focuses on doing and, and not theology. So the word immediately, immediately, immediately occurs, like 40 sometimes. How many looked for that word this week in your reading of it? Take a look this week. Thank you. Yeah, that's good. It's very interesting. Immediately, sometimes it's translated slightly different in English, but it's still the same Greek word. But <clears throat> sometimes he omits details, but he just hits the headlines. That's why it's called the newspaper version. So this is the beginning of the, and then this word here, gospel, gospel. And what's gospel? You should know that. Everybody pretty much knows that. I think when we first uh, started talking about this years ago, I was surprised about how many people could not really define the gospel. And, and it's good to be able to understand that because it's right up front. It's the heart of what the ministry is about. It means good news. Euangelion is the word. Good news. News, you is the word for good in the, in the Greek. And, and Gelian is kind of the idea of a message, the idea from which we also get the word angel. It's a related word, we're, who are messengers. So it was the good news or the good message that was coming regarding salvation, regarding Christ and all that he did and so forth in his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, if you want to know a, a, a concise definition of the gospel, jot this down. Go to 1 Corinthians 15 and read the first five verses or so, and you will see it there very clearly. It'll talk and say this is the gospel, and then it'll talk about the death, 
the burial and the resurrection of Christ and the people who saw Christ after he was resurrected. So the term gospel is not referring to some form of American Christian music, although it's used for that, of course. It's referring to one very simple thing, the good news of Christ and who he was. Take a look at that passage in 1 Corinthians 15 and first five verses, because that is a powerful, powerful text when we look at the whole of the gospel, as it talks about the resurrection of Christ. So this is the gospel, and he defines it a little bit further in that same verse. He said, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Very simple. Most of us probably know that Jesus is Christ's given name. It's the name that they used of him. Jesus was here, and they spoke with him. They would call him Jesus. It's the Greek form of the word in the Old Testament for Joshua. And uh, it's a word that basically refers to salvation, salvation, one who is a savior. And so that was a name that was given to him. Christ, Christ is not his last name. They didn't have last names per se. They would say, they would say so-and-so the son of somebody or so-and-so that had done something or lived somewhere. That's how they identified people with a secondary kind of name. But Christ was really a title. It's a title. And it's the word that really means the anointed one, the Messiah of Israel. Messiah. So whenever you see the term Christ, just think that. That's not his last name. That's his title. He is the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah that they look for. In fact, I believe when you go back to Genesis 3.15, the seed plot of the Bible where God is speaking there to Satan about that, that you see that in there that's referring, although it doesn't use the word for Messiah there, it's referring in a varied sort of vague or veiled way about the coming of the Messiah. Coming of the Messiah. Interesting. So it's Jesus Christ, and then he's the, called the Son of God. Kind of a divine title now. And um, this is more than the human sense. It's more than Jesus, who was his probably just plain name as a human being. Uh, it probably would relate a little bit more to Christ with the idea of Messiah. But even beyond that now, it's talking, I think, here about the fact that he's the second person of the Trinity here, the Son of God. You have the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all members of the Trinity, all part of the Godhead, but Jesus is the Son of God. So we have, we have kind of a veiled reference to the Trinity here as well. And John Mark presents Christ clearly as God and the very essence of the gospel, the very essence of the good news, which every believer should really understand, but too often many do not. So uh, be sure you look over 1 Corinthians 15 and take a look at that passage there. I won't look at it this morning. But you can take a look at it. So next we have in this section here, as we're as we really talking, <clears throat> are talking here about the beginning of the good news, is we have a quote. John Mark gives us a quote from the Old Testament. And so in your Bible, it's probably in all caps, showing that it's a quote from the Old Testament. In verse 2 he says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, 
who will prepare your way. So we know this is a quote, and we know it's from the Old Testament, and there's more to it in verse 3, but let's just stop there for a moment. Actually, when you take a look at this, um, at this quote right here, this one is really from Malachi 3.1. And then in verse 3, it's a quote from Isaiah 40, verse 3. So we have quotes from two Old Testament prophets, but John Mark says that Isaiah the prophet said this. So how, do, how does that work out? How do we understand that? He says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. He quotes Isaiah as being the author. And i tell you why I think he, he does that. It's not uncommon for sometimes uh, quotes in the Bible to include more than one reference to some other portion of the scripture, but really attribute it to just one person. And here he attributes it to Isaiah. It's written in Isaiah the prophet. I think he only mentions Isaiah because Isaiah was a major prophet. He was a major prophet. What makes a major prophet? A major prophet is made by the fact that he writes a lot. 66 books. I, I remember one of, the, one of the things that really had a big impact in my life was some years ago, preaching through expositionally the book of Isaiah, 66 chapters. Some of you probably thought I was never going to get through that book. Um, and we did it in a faster nature than we do like here this morning. But it was, it was wonderful because it has, it has a layout kind of like the Old and the New Testament. The first 39 chapters are pretty much like the Old Testament and the, the remainder of it up through chapter 66 are pretty much like the New Testament and it launches into the New Testament with with comfort, 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 comfort ye. And that's where this comes from. And as uh, Isaiah writes his portion here and so forth. But Isaiah was a major prophet, and certainly Malachi was not. He only has, I think, five verses, five chapters, I mean, in his short little book. So, it seems to be here that Isaiah quotes them both since both are in agreement. They both are saying essentially the same thing. They're both referring to essentially the same person and the coming of, of John the Baptist and his role that would be there. So he brings them together in agreement. It gives, it gives really emphasis to it and authority to what is going to be said later. And I think he also includes Malachi because he is the last prophet of the Old Testament. Isaiah's more or less, you know, in the central part of the Old Testament, and he's a major prophet, 66 books. And then, by the way, on the very last part, just before those, there are 400 silent years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the Old Testament and the time of the coming of Christ and John the Baptist, he's got Malachi with his short little handful of chapters there, and that also emphasizes the same thing. Just a reminder to those who read, the Jews, that there was a messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way. Both Isaiah and Malachi said that. And these are Malachi's words here in verse 2. And look at the words just for a moment. I send a messenger ahead of you, and he's going to prepare the way. Now, what does that mean? Of course, that means that someone's going to prepare the way. You know, this is what, <laughs> the plain sense of interpretation here. And um, what a messenger did in, in history was 
prepared the way for somebody, usually a king or someone in authority or perhaps um, a government leader. They would often send somebody ahead of them to, to prepare the way, make sure everything was going to be smooth. Not that they were going to grade the roads or anything like that, but they were, they were going to prepare the way and let the people know that he was coming so they could be there to meet him and, and maybe just for security purposes make sure that everything was good and there wasn't anybody that was going to rob them by the road because there were those kind of things that did take place as there are today. So here he goes, he goes off, preparing the way, he's warning them about this. The prophet is telling them this is the way it's going to be from Malachi 3.1 there in verse 2. Common for messengers to go that way. Isaiah gives his prophecy, by the way, about seven centuries before the coming of Christ, and then Malachi gives his just about four centuries before. But they say essentially the same thing. Now look at verse 3, verse 3. And it's all caps again, because now this is actually Isaiah's quote from his book. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Same thing, make his path straight. Isn't that great? Voice of one crying in the wilderness. It doesn't mean that he was sobbing, but whoever this person would be when he came, he, was be going, he would be shouting out the message that he was talking about and making ready there the way. Um, some people thought John, when he came, John, not John Mark, but the John the Baptist, that when he came that he was Elijah because he was very similar to who Elijah was from what they knew. And um, he said to the people when they asked him, are you Elijah? He said, no, I'm not Elijah. But then later on when you read what Jesus said, Jesus said, yes, he is Elijah. He's not literally Elijah, but he is in the spirit of Elijah as he comes, because there was prophecy of, to that fact, that Elijah would come back again, and people were waiting for him to come. So now it's so obvious when John the Baptist goes out and preaches his message, and these verses are here, which now John Mark is recording after the fact, keep in mind, he's recording this after the fact, somewhere around 50 AD. It's good to have things clear when somebody's coming. It's good to be sure that you know this person is coming. You know, you know when you have somebody coming to your house, uh, you like them to call ahead, you know, sometimes. We've had sometimes a visitor or two over the years. They called ahead and the house was a mess, you know. I don't know how, I'm not saying anything about my wife. I probably made the mess, you know. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, with the family around, you have things you want to tidy up. You want to prepare the way. But if you don't have anybody that calls, they don't let you know, if they don't give you a timetable, if they don't let you know in any way, shape, or form, or pass the message along, or send you a letter, then you're never, never really for sure if you're ready. But John's message was to prepare the way for the Messiah, whom he did not know yet himself, except from what we see in the Old Testament. He knew that much, but he didn't know who this person would be. John Mark didn't. So, interesting thing is when you talk about John the Baptist, who is that person that prepares the way, the thing I like about John the Baptist was um, 
he was not like some self-proclaimed prophets that said they were prophets and they got their word out there because it was all about them ultimately. But John the Baptist really was a prophet that was prophesied in the Old Testament. And so when he comes on the scene, people recognized him by his credentials in the Old Testament that we see right here. And they accept him. And so you see such a powerful response here. There are all kinds of people that proclaim to be prophets when you look around and sometimes when they start giving their message, they want people to follow them and usually give them money and things like that. And that should be a warning to you. But if they say they're a prophet, if they say they're a prophet. Well, John Mark recorded for us what John the Baptist felt. And of course, he didn't. He didn't feel like he was Elijah, but Jesus said, you are in the spirit and power of Elijah. Things he didn't even know himself. So we have here very clearly <clears throat> the beginning of the good news. Quotes from the Old Testament, good quotes to have. and It's good for you if you'd like to go back and read those quotes in context in the book of Isaiah chapter 40 or in Malachi and uh, get the context of this, especially as you go to your salt groups. If, this week, if you do, it, it's, it's, a good, it's a good exercise to understand how the scriptures link together. That's one of the things about divine revelation is how it links together in a miraculous way. And sometimes we don't even understand it until after it's happened. Prophecies about the future, prophecies about the coming of Christ, again, are like that as well. But the major part of his first coming, that's all done. So now we're going to take a look at the message of the good news in verse 4 and 5. Verse 4 and 5. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. Very newspaper-like description of what was taking place in regard to the message of the good news here. It says that he appeared in the wilderness. That's where they first kind of got sight of him, preaching a baptism of repentance. Wilderness is a, you wouldn't think that's a very good place to have a meeting with people, you know, especially that wilderness. It's that wilderness that's between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea, probably kind of like in that vicinity where the Dead Sea Scrolls. If you've ever seen the pictures of where those things were found, it's on the, the upper air, kind of like an upper cliff that looks down into the Dead Sea, which is, I believe, the lowest place on Earth. And um, it's a thousand feet below sea level, and it's hot there. It is some kind of hot. And the desert area above that and the top of the cliffs where those scrolls were, um, were found. By the way, the major scroll that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls was the book of, do you know what it was? Isaiah. If you've been to Jerusalem, you've seen, if you went far enough in the past, you saw the actual Isaiah scroll all the way around a huge room called the Scroll of the Book. And it's so interesting to me, this is not my notes, by the way, it's free. And uh, so interesting to me that Isaiah was found just about the time that Israel came back and was reconstituted as a nation. 
And it's written to Israel because Isaiah was like a chaplain to the leaders. And it's the book of the Old Testament that speaks most in a prophetic kind of way of the coming of Christ and the Messiah. So, so amazing. So um, they've had to put it now in safety because of the fact that there's war, you know, that's always a danger there. So they have a facsimile of it there. And um, I had taken Hebrew in seminary and can't read it very good, but I could, I could clearly see those characters on the, on the, the model of it that just looked exact. You could read it very easily if you were fluent in, in Old Testament Hebrew. And um, it's over 2,000 years old, I believe. Amazing. But I believe, that, I believe the Isaiah scroll was actually kind of a message to Israel in modern day that the Messiah is going to come back. And that message became clear when they found that scroll in the Dead Sea, in the Dead Sea caves there. Well, anyway, it says, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching. The wilderness there, is, it's nasty. It's 110, 120, 130 degrees, I believe, in hot days. And that's where he went. And you wouldn't find people going there very often, not for a vacation. But the Bible says that he would be in the wilderness. If you want to go to a place that's kind of like that, go down to Vantage. You know, on I-90, you're heading east, and uh, you go down those long hills. It's where they're having all those fires right now. And, uh, and you go down, you get to the bottom, you go across the big bridge that goes across the water that's there. Believe me, when before that bridge and before the dams that are there, there wasn't much water there. It was just a little creek, kind of like the Jordan River. And um, I've got pictures of it from my grandfather used to go look for arrowheads and things up on those rocky hills up there. That's what the, that's what the wilderness of Judea was really like except probably even hotter and more foreign to people. It says, He appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And um, it's interesting that it was about repentance that he preached there. So what's that? That means a change of mind, a change of heart about your sin, recognizing who you were as a sinner. And that people who listened to what he had to say, if they truly repented, then they were baptized there. They were baptized there at that place. And there was water, and that's down at the Jordan River, but that, it's a little bit of a trek down the hill to get there, and an even more difficult one back, unless you go at night when it's cooler. But uh, anyway... What they did have is, this is not the same, it, it, people say, is this the same as, um, is this the same as uh, what we do in church here? Christian baptism? Well, yes, and well, no. It's a little bit of both. It was a baptism of repentance. It was called, really, proselyte baptism. Now, I've explained this a few times before. If you don't understand it, let me just briefly explain it to you. Um, proselyte baptism was really for Gentiles because Jews didn't get baptized because they were from Abraham and so forth. They didn't need to be baptized. It wasn't in the Old Testament plan for them to be baptized. But Gentiles who had come to believe in the God of Israel, 
the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, of course, but they, they didn't have that yet. Those who had come to believe in the God of the Old Testament and wanted to worship him and be right with God, they would repent of their sins and there would be a proselyte baptism that they would go through. They would be baptized, kind of like we are. And it symbolized the fact that they had come to repentance and that they had confessed their sin and they were going to follow the God of Israel. And they would be accepted through a process of various other things into more or less the nation of Israel as proselytes, even though they were, they were really um, biologically Gentiles, they weren't Jews. So um, this is what John was doing. But the interesting thing is he wasn't baptizing Gentiles. When you read it a little bit farther, he's baptizing Jews here. So it was alike and it was different than what we do today. It was alike in the fact that both our baptism that we do today and both what they did then was about repentance. So when we do baptism, this is called New Testament baptism or believer's baptism, which is mentioned for us in a number of places in the history of it in the book of Acts as well. After the church began, the first thing they did was baptize people. What must we do? And they'd say, well, you be baptized, you know, repent and be baptized. But um, so anyway... Um, it's similar, it's about repentance of sin, but in a way it's also just a little bit different. Both, both were about repentance, the Old Testament version and the New, but the difference was the Old Testament one was looking forward and preparing the way for the Messiah, but the New Testament one, when we do it, we're not looking forward to the preparing, we're looking back and what Christ did for us on the cross. So Romans chapter 6 talks about the death, the burial, and the resurrection, and it uses baptism in that context also. You with me? If you haven't been baptized, um, talk with us afterwards, and we'll explain that more, or read our little thing on baptism also. By the way, the word means dunked. It doesn't mean sprinkled, and it doesn't mean poured. The primary meaning in any Good lexicon will tell you it means to be dunked. It's used also of ships sinking. That's pretty much a dunking, isn't it? <laughs> In ancient Greek language. Verse 5, it says, And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. So he wasn't really baptizing Gentiles. There probably were a few Gentiles in there, but the majority were Jews were being baptized, even though this was a proselyte kind of baptism that they generally only did for Gentiles. But now it's the Jews that are being baptized. So what's going on, what's going on with that? I, when I realized this uh, in the study of this over the years, it was so amazing to you. What, what, what God is saying to them and through John the Baptist as he preached, he must have been a fiery preacher, let me tell you. He really must have been. What, it, what it's really saying was these Jews were so sinful at this point in history in Judea and Jerusalem that they might as well have been Gentiles and so they were going through a Gentile-like baptism confessing their sins and coming back to the way they should have been. That's the essence of what was going on here. So John was baptizing Jews and they were coming out. It's interesting here, it says they were in the country of Judea. That's really the heartland of Israel. 
That's the area that's around Jerusalem. And all the people of Jerusalem, which is the capital of capitals. Some people say the capital of the world, actually. But as far as Israel is concerned, it was the capital of those people. And John's message appealed to many people, got their attention, and it got the attention of the religious leaders. And that's something we'll cover later. And it says in verse 5 also, And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River and confessing their sins. The Jordan River is not like the Columbia River. The Jordan River is not very big. I mean, you can swim across it in about five minutes very easily in many places. They went down to the river wherever it was. After he had preached to them, he was in the wilderness. And um, they baptized people there. By the way, the very fact that he came in the wilderness was a sign. Because Old Testament prophets came in the wilderness also. Um, we have Elijah as kind of the key person there. And um, he was in the wilderness. So when John showed up in the wilderness, and Moses was in the wilderness, and we know that even later on when Jesus' first ministry began, it started from the wilderness perspective as he was tempted by Satan. But it was a place where John and those prophets could go and meditate and draw closer to God. And people flocked out to hear him. So we looked at the beginning of the good news and we looked at the message of the good news, but now we will look at the proclaimer of the good news in a greater way. Verse 6, 7, and 8. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist. And his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me is one coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but you will baptize, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So, it talks about him as the guy that's doing the preaching here, and it talks about his persona, what he did, what he wore. He wore clothing of camel's hair and um, a, a leather belt. It wasn't much. It wasn't fancy. It was just basics of what you needed to survive in the wilderness. I don't know if you've ever worn a camel hair thing, but you know if you've ever worn a, like a, a poorly made wool garment without like some kind of cloth underneath it, it, it's pretty scratchy. I could imagine that wasn't exactly um, something they would sell at Costco, you know. You want comfort stuff for Gig Harbor, right? But his clothing signified who he was in a way. It mentions it here. Prophets wore stuff like that because they were in a, they were in a very hostile environment there. Clothes were camel hair and also a leather belt around the waist. That's about it, something to hold it together. Very, very similar kind of a picture of what a prophet would be like. Pretty austere kind of lifestyle. This was unlike the fashionable lifestyle of the religious leaders of Jerusalem. Came out in the, all the things they wore and their phylacteries and their long outfits and their funny-looking hats and little bells and things and 
fringe and so forth because they love to be seen by the people. They love to be seen by the people. By the way, be careful what you wear at church, you know. I'm not suggesting you wear camel hair because that'll draw attention to you more than anything else in this culture. But don't come dressed so that people will look at you. Come dressed so you will worship. And let the Holy Spirit speak to you about that. So he had this weird outfit on with a leather belt around his waist. And his diet was locust and, and wild honey. There's a lot of varying differences as, as, as what that exactly means. Locusts were kind of a, kind of a, a, a bug. Some think it was actually some kind of plant, but wild honey. Those things came together and um, he, he ate them. Probably not something too good. Not something too good. Yuck. This morning, I gave my cat a special treat. My cat gets canned food on Sundays. That's his Sunday dinner. Normally he gets this hard stuff, you know, that looks like, a, looks like chocolate chips, but they're hard and they're not chocolate chips. But it's cat food and it's good for him, it's healthy for him. But once a week I give him the, the good stuff, you know. And I opened up this can of meat and I opened it up. It's like a tuna fish can. I opened it up and it was full of, um, what do you call those things? Maggots. And they were just crawling all over. How did the maggots get in there, I thought to myself. Yuck, and I just about put that thing down. I got a plastic bag and I put it in there and I put it in the, put it in the trash. The cat wanted to eat it right away. Of course, he didn't see what it was, so I gave him a fresh can and it was good. So watch what you buy for your cat. That's not the ultimate message this morning, but... Uh, <laughs> but what John ate, it must not have been too kind. It must not have been too good. And there wasn't fresh food out there. And there wasn't a place to stop in. And there wasn't even a widow's place. And even today, it's pretty much like that if you've gone to, if you've gone to the Holy Land. That's what his diet was. But that's how they determined partially who the prophet was because he was coming in very simple attire. It wasn't about himself. It was about his message. And the message was about Christ and the coming of Christ. And he didn't even know specifically who Christ was yet necessarily. Verse 7. Talks about what he was preaching again. Let's look at that because it's, it brings it up again in a slightly different way. And he was preaching and saying, after me one, it's capital O in the English to make the emphasis there, one is coming who is mightier than I and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals there. So uh, very simply, it just means that John was humble. And it was a custom for wealthy people in that day. It was very much the custom for wealthy people. When they got home, when their sandals were on and their sandals were um, dirty, because, you know, there was dirt even in Jerusalem, and their feet would be pretty dirty, and so they didn't want to untie their own sandals because their fingers and their hands would get dirty. And uh, so they would have their servant bend down and take the sandals off. And that was what servants did. They untied the sandal laces so that they could get their quote-unquote shoes off, you know. But John says that he was not even worthy of untying the sandal laces of the Messiah. And even though that he was one that was designated to be that, he was not fit to stoop down and untie those sandals. You know, none of us are. 
We are all sinners. None of us are worthy to untie Christ's sandals. None of us could even approach him, I think, if we understood that before our salvation. But becoming born again and our sins being taken care of changes everything. And now we can serve the King of Kings as John Mark was doing and as John the Baptist was doing. So Elijah really was a kind of a type of this and John was a type of that. I mean, Elijah was the prophet of old and, and John was a type of that. When people saw John coming, they thought this was the promised coming of Elijah who would herald these things too. And it's interesting also that um, Elijah, when he came and his protege took up for him, his protege, Elisha, said, I want a double portion of your spirit. I want a double portion of your spirit before Elijah left for good. And that's kind of similar to verse 8, isn't it? Because verse 8 says, what John said is, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John is saying, I baptize you to the people here, to these Jews who came out who were as spiritually filthy as the Gentiles. He says, I baptize you with water. Water's not going to save your souls. Water's not going to wash the sins. But it does symbolize that. He says, but he, that is the Messiah, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. There's, I think, kind of a veiled reference to perhaps the, the double portion that, that Elijah's protege was speaking about here. So, today's baptism is different as we look back. We look back to what Christ did behind us, for us, and John's baptism looked forward to it. If you want to say this is the time of Christ, he looked forward to the coming of Christ. He was very close to it. And that promise had been there all throughout the Old Testament. So it wasn't a new promise. But now this is the beginning of it as John himself was there. The, the one who was the prophet himself that was prophesied about. And now we have the baptism today and we look back to it. But both are about repentance. Both are about forgiveness of sin. Both are about being washed from your sins. Not by the water, but by the work of God. And they look forward to that in the Old Testament on faith, not knowing how that would all work out. And we look back to it knowing about that. And so it's very clear to us. So when you read what the gospel is in 1 Corinthians 15, it's about the death, the burial, and the resurrection. So it's a wonderful thing. So, the water picture is washing away of our sins. Romans 6 says, Or do you not know, this is New Testament now, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? That's the death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So when a person goes into the water, whether it's in the tank or it's in a river or a lake or someplace, they go down there, they're picturing the death of Christ as we look back and the resurrection of Christ as they come up out of the water. So John really recognized his baptism was only a prelude to what Jesus would bring and the Messiah would come. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 talks about the rest of that, the spirit part. It says, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Greek, 
where the slaves are free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. So there's a sense in which baptism really pictures the spirit baptism, what the spirit does to every believer. The moment you believe, the moment you put your sincere faith in Christ with a repentant heart, recognizing that he is the only one that can save you, and you humbly bow before him, his death on the cross takes care of you. Your sins are washed away. And um, the Spirit of God comes to dwell in you, comes to dwell in you. So this morning, as we think of those things and pray this morning, perhaps that is uh, a step you haven't taken or you've just understood it this morning and you know you need to, let us know afterwards. We'll be up here. We can talk with you or pick up the literature and read it. We'll have baptism down the road when there's needs for it. Have you repented of your sin? Have you taken the step of obedience of baptism in the New Testament sense, looking back to it, to the promised Messiah that John looked forward to? Let's pray. Lord, we are really thankful this morning for the message of the gospel and the power of the gospel that we could not even begin to understand without the words of people like John Mark, wrote these very brief and short accounts like a newspaper to get the message out there. And then others like Matthew, Luke, and John give their perspective and enrich it also. May, Lord, everyone who is um, walking with you today just rejoice in that fact as we worship this morning. And, And Lord, may anyone and everyone who hasn't taken that step, be willing to come up and say, I need to do that. I do believe. I have put my faith in Christ. But I need to take the step of the outward profession of baptism. And speak to the um, uncertain person, Lord, too. Those who are not quite so sure, help them see it. May your spirit open their mind's eyes and and to be able to see it and um, and be able to really embrace with an attitude of repentance what Christ did for us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.